It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, everyone. Stakui here. And before things begin, I just wanted to tell you about this month's Chirp Audiobooks book club choice. Okay, so this month we are covering Defenders of the Faith, which is going to look at the massively contentious period that was in the 1500s between the Habsburgs and the Ottomans and their battle for the Balkans. Because, I mean, uh, okay, if anything in history is spicy, it's going to be the Balkans. Now, normally this book is $23, but for a very limited time, you can get it for $4 by clicking the link in the description. Every purchase of the book, when you do it through the book club here, it supports the channel. And I look forward to hearing from you in discord, as well as the monthly feedback in the book club. Thank you, everyone. And I do hope that you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Stakui here, and I am actually here with another guest, though this time it is not my wife and it is not the VAT electrician. It is Aiden Mathis. Welcome in. Why can nobody get my last name right? Math. Ma- you and you and Wendigoon, same week. It's it's Mathis, right? It's it's Mattis, M-A-T-T. Yeah, it's there's everybody thinks there's an H there. There's not. I swear to God for the. There's not an H. No, wait, 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 wait. There's there's not an H. No, there's not an H. It's a second T. So it's just Matt. <laughs> now I will I will say this. We think it God comes from. It. We think it comes from uh, a Matthias or a Matthias uh, way back when our family was coming over here in like the mid 1700s. So it probably was Matthias at some point and just uh, at somewhere along the way, we lost the H. That I get it. But now it's bothering me because you don't like you know how you have an internal monologue. Not necessarily everyone has yeah. an internal yeah. monologue, but I have an internal monologue that when I'm reading a story, when I'm reading text, when I'm doing anything, I have it in my head and it's telling me something. And I'm like, oh yes, Mathis, 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 yep. Mathis, Mathis. And like <laughs> that is even now I'm saying it's Mattis and in my brain, Mathis. Yeah. Like that's Oh, oh you're everyone's lucky I went with my second last name because I have a hyphenated one. The other one's Piambino. Uh Wait, wait, even worse. Yeah, so my last, my full name is Aiden. uh, My middle name is Lewis, uh, but my full name is Aiden Lewis Piambino Mattis. um, But I just go with the Aiden and Mattis because eleven characters is a lot easier for everybody. Uh, Okay, well, Piambino, tell everyone who it is that you (laughs) actually are. (laughs) So uh, my name is Aiden Mattis, of course. Uh, I am the host of the Lore Lodge and was the host of the History Hut before we. we put that on hiatus. Um, I am a Penn State educated historian and folklorist. I also uh, delve into theology and such. That's my main body of work. Love talking about history, the paranormal, and um, you know Judeo Christian uh, stories. So that's that's kind of who I am, and I am very excited to be here. I. Uh, you were one of the first people I've told you this. You were one of the first people I followed on TikToks. So this is exciting for me. And you were one of the first people that I actually followed on there because, I mean, it, it's 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 one of those things where I don't actually follow many people. I don't do many things. Like I obviously I have specific things that catch my interest in this sort of thing. And when you would tie the history in with folklore and all these kinds of things, I think, oh, yeah, that's really cool. I really like that. And then, of course, you know, you have my wife who is the person that will 
watch extensively anything for the mystery of people going missing in national parks and all that stuff <laughs> and then say, yeah, we're never going to go completely ruining my vacation. So I'm just going to tell you this. I'll the, go if, with you. Well, awesome. Fantastic. <laughs> but I have a feeling that the moment that we say that we're going to do that, my wife is going to have a heart attack and just be panicking for the next like four weeks before it actually happens. Oh, my gosh. Hey, if anyone's going to survive it, it's going to be me. Because <laughs> I believe it was the first video that I ever saw, if I recall, was what happens when a person finds a bell in the forest. Oh, yeah, that one. The guy, the person was like, I rang this bell I found in the woods. And I'm like, well, that's like breaking every single rule of what you're not supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I was trying to think about this like, OK, so if we're talking a subject here and I'm usually able to tie this in for any number of things, like in the case of when I had fat electrician on here, obviously he is military. Everything in there is tied to weapons, machinery, all that sort of thing. In your case, it's something more along the lines of folklore and culture, but also simultaneously like medievalist, like your specialty specifically was you said it was primarily centered around England, right? Like it was on the British Isles. Yeah. So for me, I started in. So I was a medieval studies major. And then my concentration within my major was on history. And then within that, almost all of my body of actual academic work was about the British Isles. So that included uh, the Viking influence, the Roman influence, French influence, but generally centered around the British Isles. And of, honestly, I I just find the history of the Celtic nations to be fascinating from their, you know, what the, the mystery that is their religion, because we know some stuff about Celtic religion that we've been able to reconstruct from, uh, you know, Nennius and Gildas and kind of the, the vestiges. St. Patrick also has some stuff in there. And then we've got the stories that made it onto the continent that were recorded by the Romans. But we don't really have we don't have it the way we have Norse religion and the way we have Egyptian and Greek. We we just have these fragments of Celtic religion. And we know that they influenced society in a very, very intense, heavy way that the Druids were this very uh, respected class and they weren't just priests. They were also doctors and lawyers and, uh, you know, they were the, the teachers, they were the professional class, but they were completely illiterate on purpose. They weren't, they weren't illiterate. Like they knew how to write, but they, they wouldn't. <laughs> it was an entirely oral tradition like that yeah. because it was words. And I believe it, if I recall correctly, song that the magic of the because it, it was something closely tied where the rituals, the religion, everything together was tied with the oral spoken word. And that that itself was magic. What it was. Yeah, they, they had doing. some some very, very strong beliefs about uh, music and song and the influence that those things could have. Wales is still known as the land of song. Um, and just in in all of their stories, you get, uh, especially in the early Arthurian literature, everything is a song. Everything rhymes. Everything is metered. And there is there is an intention of singing this. And it they had a, a system of belief, basically, that uh, is is incredibly unique in terms of the the rest of the European continent. Um, just everything was very much the ebb and flow of things. And f and what was most important to them was maintaining um, these these sort of balances in nature. It's it's truly some of the most incredible stuff. Uh, they do often get represented, especially by Wiccans as being kind of this early ecological 
movement, but that's completely inaccurate. <laughs> oh, you know, considering everything that they would do in terms of warfare raids and uh, everything else. Yeah, no, they they yeah. they were they were not hippies. They they were no. they were definitely not hippies, which I know exactly what you're talking about with Wiccans, which I yeah. I have not covered many things with religion itself on my channel because mm -hmm. Whenever I even very dangerous to brush to into the subject, uh, usually people get mad. That's just what ends up happening. And I, I've still been contemplating going in and making a video on the history of Wiccan and just explaining how it is not some three or four thousand year old religion that is combined of all these older faiths brought into like the modern age. No, it it was literally something that was made up back in the 60s. And for the purpose of convincing women to be more promiscuous. <sighs> yeah. The, the dude who founded the, the whole Wiccan movement is sketchy as all. Oh, my God. Oh. Um, and, and, and I love his reasoning. He's like, ah, yeah, there were a bunch of secret witch covens that maintained the religion up until the modern day. And it's like, God, uh, well, no. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are probably a couple in some areas, but not like we're publishing our books everywhere from all these varying things. Like, I'll give you this as an example. If we're talking, say, Christianity in Europe, when you're looking at it, and mm -hmm. Islam is another prime example of this. It was not like it was the year 1000 and everyone was Christian in. Yeah. And, and, and obviously, we know things like in Scandinavia, you have a very divided population. Mm -hmm. Where half the population is Christian, half the population is not, and there's all this contention over it. But even in places like France, large swaths of the rural areas in southern France still had all of these like actual like still pagan idols and traditions mm -hmm. that they were regularly sending inquisitors into the area to clear them out of heresy and apostasy. Like it was it was something that in southern France there were massacres of these people. In in Asia, what would or I say Asia like in the Middle East going into Asia, Afghanistan, which I found doing more research in preparation for uh the the upcoming video that I want to do here is mm -hmm. that just like now, what happened in the past with Afghanistan is that every time a conqueror would come in, they would conquer the area, they would leave, and then mm -hmm. new people would, you know, just – or the old people would just rise back up against them. And what would end up happening is when Islam was first coming in there, they would conquer it. They would convert people, you know, because you either converted – at that point when they were doing it, it was by the sword. So you converted or you died. People would convert. The moment that they left, cities would revolt and go back to their old faith. It took what, centuries for Islam to take over there. I, I think the reason that Islam struggled so much over there, but a part of it is the strength of Zoroastrianism, uh, which is it, it was it's one of the world's oldest. It, it, mm, it's often referred to as one of the world's oldest monotheistic religions. It is technically dualist. It does have a single creator being technically, but. It, it's believed by some people that Zarathustra, the, the man who actually is the, the prophet of Zoroastrianism, was from Bactria. So he would have been from Afghanistan. So it's got just the entire – the Zoroastrianism appears to have entered Persia from the east. 
Meanwhile, it's an extraordinarily similar religion in many ways to Judaism. I mean, so the, the region itself was a conglomeration of multiple. Like when they when you look at Afghanistan and say like the year 600 or so, it is a massive combination between Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, Hindu. Like it is it is a whole mix because you have all the different tribes within their varying segments that are constantly fighting one another. And each one is holding to their own cultural and religious belief. Exactly. Afghanistan has just had a weird crossroads. It's literally, <laughs> it is the crossroads and, and death roads of empires. It really is. It is the gateway. The uh, I'm just I, I do wonder, you know, what if Alexander hadn't pushed? I do wonder if he could have maintained it. Probably not. Not the, Gre- the, the Greco-Bactrian kingdom did hang on for a little bit. They would have held on to it. With a large degree of autonomy. Okay, so yeah. this is this is different from what I initially thought that we were going to be discussing primarily with the Vikings, because now we're going into this whole thing. But there was um, circle back somehow. Oh, yeah, no, this is what happens. Usually it's just tangent after tangent after tangent that just goes down different lines. Okay, so you know how there were multiple Persian empires, right? Okay, mm-hmm. so you had the, the the initial Persian Persians like the Achaemenids. Then you had varying groups like the uh, you had Medes. the Sasanians. After the, mm-hmm. well, the Medes were before that. So you had the Sasanians. After the Sasanians, then that was conquered by, of course, Islam. So then you had the Safavids, and so you had the Safavids and the Safayids later on. And so the Safayid state was the state of Iran. Essentially, it was Persia. That's what it was. And Afghanistan at the time was under nominal independence. Like it was it was essentially a buffer state where it it existed. It was still controlled. It paid homage to Iran. But then when or Iran, I say to Persia, but then when the Shah of Persia was assassinated, then the Durrani Empire rose because then they got independence. I I like to liken Afghanistan to Tatooine. <laughs> From I, Star yeah, Wars. Yeah, well, with all the I varying different people. Yeah. With the different warlords and regional lords, but where there's still technically a central government, but each one is kind of independent in what exactly. it does with all the varying cultures and groups. Yeah. No. And it's just incredibly hard for anybody to pacify. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, my wife is texting me literally right now asking where I put her Kindle because she's in bed. For anyone who's wondering, the reason why Gabby is not recording this one here with me is because she is very sick. And so I actually wrote a whole series of different things to bring new people in for different podcasts because I figure with both of us working with everything that's going to be happening, who knows who's going to be available at any given time. And of course, mine was Vikings. And now we're talking about Afghanistan. (laughs) But I mean, you know. Speaking of like the, you know, the Middle East to an extent and Vikings, um, I, I told you one of my favorite characters from history is Harold Hardrada. Mm-hmm. Hey, everyone. It's like who you here. And before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The, the man was a world... He was a globetrotter. The guy starts up in Norway and then makes his way down through Kievan Rus, down into Constantinople, and then the emperor just sends him all over the Mediterranean, including the Middle East. The guy fought Saracens before that was cool, before the Crusaders were doing it. Yeah, because he was part of the Varangian Guard. Like, it, well, he, he, he was one of the, the he was, head of he the was, Yeah, he Guard. was the captain. He was the guy who was in charge. Um, and part of the, you know, the 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 story of all this is there's, you know, he gets off to, gets sent off to hunt pirates all over the Eastern Mediterranean and is so incredibly successful that piracy actually decreases. It's not just, you know, he's not just a good policeman. He actually decreases piracy in the region. And then he gets sent over to Sicily, which was on, which was not under Byzantine control. And it wasn't really under anybody's individual control. And the guy just conquers town after town. And the, the, my favorite part of it when I was doing research on the guy back in college was, I got to this one episode where he's in Sicily and I think it's the third of the cities he conquers. And of course, a lot of this could, this is all from Heimskringla. It could easily just be Snorri Sturluson making stuff up or changing it around, you know, combining events, whatnot. As the skulls naturally would. Yeah. So, (laughs) so of course there's another, there's another general involved here named uh, Guy Gier, uh, or probably George, um, who is kind of his rival in in Snorri's retelling of events. And this is a guy who just fights with very typical Byzantine tactics, takes a lot of casualties and all that. And then there's Harold. And Harold is just clever. He doesn't take many casualties. He wins all of his battles. And one of those, they end up uh, laying siege to a city on Sicily. They've fought for three cities, which are... Equally just interesting in terms of what they did. Uh, the the first, oh, I'll just go through them. Uh, okay. The first one, uh, he orders that his fowlers catch birds that are nesting in the city that fly out to gather food around the countryside during the day. And then, according to Snorri, they dripped hot wax on the birds and then attached brimstone to the wax and set them on fire so that they would fly back to their nests under the eaves of the buildings inside the city and set the city on fire. Like the story of Olga of Kiev. Yeah, it's again, it's very possible he's, you know, taking things from other places here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another one where they dug a tunnel under the walls, which became a rather popular medieval tactic. Um, and there was one of my favorite ones is that he organized a series of games outside of the walls of one of these cities. And his warriors would just go and compete in various uh, Varangian as well as Greek games, almost in Olympic style. And he did this for uh, weeks and the population of the city just became completely unconcerned with the siege and left the gates open. Um, And I, and then, um, they just rushed in while everybody was distracted. They, like everyone was just watching the games, and they just enter the city. But my all-time favorite is uh, the the last one that's recorded because it's in the TV show Vikings, mm-hmm. but it's not Harold; it's Ragnar. So mm-hmm. for anyone who hasn't seen the show, might be a bit of a spoiler, but it's in like season three. They lead they lay siege to Paris. Ah, yes, the famous Siege of Paris. Yes, and Ragnar uh, fakes being dead. 
to but he converts to Christianity and then he fakes being dead and they carry his body into the cathedral and then he jumps out and he's got his weapons and they attack people and whatever. Uh, Snorri record, records that that was Harold. Mm -hmm. That Harold on Sicily pretended to be dead. They carried him in, and it wasn't even he didn't have to convert. He was already Christian um, and they carried him in and then his closest warriors had weapons hidden under them. He had his weapons in his uh, his casket, hopped out, opened the gates and boom. Um, so like, uh, they basically they had him take all the coastal strongholds and then send George in when, when all of the, you know, heavy lifting was done. Yeah. I mean, well, once the coastal settlements are taken, then that means you have supply points that you're able to resupply from by sea. If you mm -hmm. don't secure any ports, then you're going to be going inland with, you know, danger to your rear. Yeah. It would not have been great. It would not have been a good plan. Oh, absolutely not. Now, you mentioned the show Vikings, because obviously everyone, when they're thinking about this, and they're talking about Vikings as what we associate. I have to say this from the beginning for anyone who's very confused or who this might bother. I'm just going to state it outright. Vikings are one of the most heavily romanticized groups in history, I say Extremely. romanticized and demonized like it's different for every part of the world for which one receives more. But do you have any idea just how many shows have come out, shows, books, games, movies, everything in the past, just like five years or so that are all Vikings? It's kind of ridiculous. Like, I remember just like. I don't even really watch live TV anymore, but I would see an ad that would pop up on something for when I when I had ads on Hulu and just be like, oh, yes, starting this fall Vikings. And then, of course, there's movies like The Northmen. And then there's, you know, The Last Kingdom. And I think there was like two or three others as well that were their there's own miniseries. Norseman, which is comedy, but that one that one's actually Norwegian. Uh, and Netflix just came out with a spinoff of Vikings called Vikings Valhalla. Uh, I have yet to bother to watch past the first 10 minutes. Uh, Part of that is yeah. because the story, uh, it opens with Ethelred the Unready himself informing one of the uh, Viking earls that he's decided to kill everyone with Viking blood on the continent yep. or on the, on the Island. And I'm like, oh, okay, he did do that. Yes. He did order that, but I doubt that he went to York to personally inform the oral and then red wedding him. Yeah. Cause that, that happens in the first 10 minutes of the episode. Um, it, like it, you get, he, he walks in, this guy is getting married. He's getting married, of course, to Swain Forkbeard's uh, sister. Um, and then he, he has them all shot with crossbows, which in Anglo-Saxon England is not the most likely thing to happen. No, that was something I remember that confused me. The, but the weapons, arms, armor, everything is um that that's a whole other discussion right there that just throws me off. There's a scene. Oh, but I, it's a discussion to have. Yeah, it is definitely <laughs> a discussion to have. I will grant you that. Like the thing, the reason why people watched Vikings is really because of it, it's almost like a more historical Game of Thrones. It was the blood and sex. Basically, it was it, it in many ways would tell an epic story, mm. but it is not historically accurate pretty much at all like oh my no. the, the vikings had its issues but i will say this vikings valhalla because i watched more than the first 10 minutes mm -hmm. and it it hurts 
it actively it, hurts because just nothing ab- nothing about it seemed good from the first 10 minutes. Here's here's where I draw an issue from things is that you would expect a series you would expect when watching something like this that yes it's going to have some epic moments yes it's going to romanticize the heroes or demonize people it's going to do this but what vikings does especially as it goes further on and valhalla does astronomically more in such a worse way is romanticizing again the idea of vikings almost every other minute you have an individual in there that is going ah yes we vikings and they call themselves vikings over and over and over again we it's vikings. not something they I, viking. really done. I viking we are vikings we're doing this as vikings and it's like they didn't call themselves vikings they never once did viking like to go a viking like a viking like that is that's a verb yeah that's that it, it wasn't it wasn't a thing and even then, the term Viking didn't actually become a thing until going into like what? I think around the year 1100 or so. It wasn't until the actual Middle Ages, not early mid- medieval period, like what we're talking about later on. Yeah, they mu- they would have been much more likely to be called Norsemen by the people they were actually fighting or Northmen. Um, you know, it's just I get the term Vikings a real buzzword. And I, I will say this on the other side of it. The people who whenever somebody uses the term Viking to apply to the broader Norse cultural group of the time, uh, you've got people who are like, actually, Viking was a verb. And I'm sitting here like, you know, I took I took classes from one of the premier scholars on the Vikings of our day. He called them Vikings. <laughs> like, yep. like cool, cool it. You know, it's not <laughs> a can, matter of can, someone the term, using the term to the term is recognizable. It. That's yeah. why people are using it. Exactly. And it's not that's not where I draw an issue from. It's of, it's of the people declaring it as though it's some yeah. like national idea, because the whole time, all the characters, what it is they're doing is they're drawing themselves as a kind of collective group and force like they're asserting it, it, it was a kind of nationalism. It was Viking nationalism. That's the best really way that I can describe it. Because my, my favorite thing the, about Viking nationalism as an idea is just trying to apply it to Iceland because Iceland was an anarchist state like at the time. Oh God. <laughs> it's just like Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. When you look at like the idea of what they're talking about, how they collectivize themselves as all Vikings, the big divide of what they did is they were showing the split between Christianity and paganism like, yeah. like Norse paganism but the 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 thing is they rightfully show the split and how it was dividing families how it was dividing settlements it was dividing everyone but also it it really really leans hard into Christians being the villains like the non not tolerating not anything which of course yeah we're talking a time of religious warfare yeah they're not going to be very tolerant but neither are the goddamn pagans but they they consistently are showing over and over and over again all of this just outright religious hatred and like the Christians constantly being devious evildoers that are trying to screw over the Vikings <laughs> and I'm looking at this going wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute this is this is a time period that is set of course after you know the massive uh heathen army invasion like yes it's taking yeah. place a hundred years after but all of this is still fresh vikings are still going out and they're still raiding they're doing all of this it's not like these are their people are innocent 
Yeah, but I mean, by the time you get to 1000 AD, like what you're what you're actually dealing with at the time of the the Danish invasion of England in 10 what is it 1011 or 1014 was an actual claim to the throne. Yeah, exactly. There's an actual Danish like assault. but we're talking we're not just talking about, you know, a couple decades. This is two centuries, possibly even longer of, you know, the awareness of Norse raiders. But the first Viking raid gets recorded in 793. Yeah, with Lindisfarne. Like, yeah, you're, you're getting it's the same thing that I tell people with the Crusades that there's a lot of people who are like, oh, you know, the Crusades were completely unjust. And it's like, OK, they weren't they weren't just Christians going, hey, that city belongs to us. You're talking about 400 years of religious warfare. Like they've been getting invaded for 400 years before they decide, you know what? Let's 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 go on the offense. Uh, it's the same thing with the English under Ethelred, and it was a terrible idea. It was a bad decision, but you you know it wasn't like they were just evil. They were literally looking at this like we're we're facing life or death. If these guys these guys could do this to us at any minute. Yep, it's what I, essentially what I'm getting at after all this you know long spiel is that there's a lot more nuance than what is showed, but what they just. That what they do with the characters is and the battles. Oh my god, the battles. Here the if battles anyone, early in Vikings were actually really good. That's what you'd have like thirty to forty people on each side, one person would die and they'd be like, ah, that's enough, that's enough. Because that's how it would be. People don't get this because when they look at battles, they think that it needs some massive Hollywood epic of thousands of people on the screen at the same time in formation, charging into one massive melee brawl. And that's not how fights worked for the longest time. You're thinking about Scandinavia. It is not very heavily populated when a when an army of Vikings would come. This would be only a couple thousand dudes. That's and that's the entire army. The army exactly. would then, of that's course, be split up into multiple different contingents that would be moving around the countryside because they didn't all stay together. They would have to be split apart in order to secure strong points, secure supplies, do get intelligence. So when a battle would break out, when there would be something, you would typically only have at most a couple hundred dudes, maybe around a thousand dudes that were fighting at the same time. Yeah, it's I, I mean, for for an army of there's in a, in the actual Saxon Chronicles series by Bernard Cornwell that the last kingdom is based off of. He he's pretty heavy on this. He harps on it like these are when he's talking about giant battles and he does. He's such a good writer because the way he talks about it, he's describing this battlefield and these armies. And you're sitting there like, oh, my God, you know, you're envisioning like tens of thousands. Of, and then he's like, and the Saxons brought 700 men while the Norse brought 1000. And you're like. You have me sitting here like all hyped up and pumped up and you're you're having you're I'm watching 1700 dudes fight. Yeah. Um, but he the way he writes it, it makes it feel so much bigger. And you can imagine that's what it must have been like to be there because you're the, the most common sorts of battles you were talking about. Most of the time were between individual fiefs, you know, two two lords who are having a land dispute and they each send 50 household guard. Well, and yeah. that's your battle. Well, like, because at the time, we're not talking about great states. England itself is not England. England would not exist for a couple hundred years. What it was at the time was, you know, you got Wessex, Essex, Anglia, you have Sussex, you have all the different petty kingdoms that are just like, well, how many were there in total? Was it like I, eight of them? It's there were. 
so at one point there were a lot more. By the time of the Danish and the Norse invasion, you were looking at four. It was Mercia, East Anglia, Northumbria, and Wessex. But Wessex hadn't originally been Wessex, Sussex, and Essex. East Anglia had had a West Anglia. Uh, Northumbria was split up into Bernicia and Dira. And then Mercia was uh, on the edge of a Celtic kingdom called uh, Penguin. Oh, yeah, for the Welsh. Yes. Yeah. Because you had uh, Penguin, you had Gwyneth, you had – there was another one in there before. Uh, there's uh, there's there, I think a there whole was, bunch of them. There's Brechenog. There's, they had uh, dozens. There were dozens of little Welsh princedoms. Oh, do, I'm do not, not even, even call get them me kingdoms. started on the Welsh princedoms. <laughs> well, they actually preferred the term prince, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, because Welsh, no, no true Welshman would bow to a king. <laughs> That's yeah. They had their princes, but <laughs> screw so, the kings. They were not so, there. So their term ri uh, is it technically translates to king, but this was a term that you know they they would think of these people more as princes, and it was actually descended from Roman tradition. They, Correct. They, they took this from the Romans, and they were like, all right, well the the prince is the first the first person he's the you know the 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 first among us the highest but he's not our king he's not our our you know like he's not it was a weird mix there was a combination of the the roman concept of the first citizen and the princeps and all of that uh, combined with the idea of kings having a divine backing so when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A king, a king rises and falls by the grace of God. A prince rises and falls by his own merits. So it was kind of a bit of that as well. That makes um, a lot more sense, actually. Yeah, and you know, they, there was all these terms like uh, Ardri, which would be a high king. That would be an elected position. Um, yes. Whereas over in Ireland, you would have almost exactly the same term. I think it's Arthri or something. Um, Arthri versus Arthri, uh, the, the Welsh to Irish. They're, Welsh and Irish are not nearly as related as people think. Also, one is P-Celtic and one is Q-Celtic. Um, Irish is actually continental Celtic, Celtic whereas uh, Welsh is insular Celtic. They're extremely different. They just have a lot of loan words um, like Seath, uh, which is the uh, the fairy mound. It's how you enter the other world. Um, but – so the, the Ardri of the Irish was a position of power. You asserted yourself as Ardri. Within the Welsh culture, it was more of an elected position or a position that you could work your way into, like Vradri uh, Mor, uh, the guy who was king during the Great Heathen Invasion. He married his way into the high kingship. He just married himself to another very powerful leader's daughter and then married off all of his sons to the daughters of other minor kingdoms and in that way created this confederation. Uh, my theory about Arthur is that we're actually dealing with an etymological thing that Arthur, uh, Arthur Pendragon or Arthur Pendragon could come from Arthur Pendrech, which would mean uh, high king, prince of the dragons or great dragon, something like that. Well, yeah, there's I that whole theory going back that – Obviously, the King Arthur in the round table and all of this is a myth, but it is very possible that there was actually a Roman noble that was 
Arthur or the variant of the name that would then inspire everything else that would have been a leader at the time that would have been dealing with things as the Roman state around them collapsed. Yeah, and it's in my opinion, it's almost certain because we have uh, the of course, all of the chronicles that record Arthur. But then across the ocean in Brittany, we have chronicles from the Franks. And what they record is uh, around the time that Arthur was supposedly active, the second half of the fifth century and the first half of the sixth century. It said in the, uh, for example, Historia Britannum, which is an actual historical work. It's a little bit pseudo historical, but for the most part, it's believed to be, uh, you know, rather accurate. He talks about how Arthur drove the Angles and the Saxons from the shores of Britain. And at that same time, we have chronicles from the French saying, yeah, all these German speakers arrived in Brittany saying they came across from Britain. So in my opinion, Arthur, Arthur was real. He just wasn't the King Arthur of 14th century. Yeah, exactly. Legend. It's not the legends for it here, but these things get retold again and again and again. And this is how legends and cultures and stories and everything's are built. Like That's just that's what happens. Yeah, and it is it does make me laugh that the English and the French both have like they both lay claim to Arthur and then in reality is Welsh. (laughs) (laughs) Same thing with St. Patrick. Oh, (laughs) yes, yes, because he was okay. So many people thought of think, of course, that Patrick is Irish. He's not. He was a slave in Ireland. He wasn't actually Irish. Mm -hmm. And he's the reason he's a a hero to the Irish is is because he brought them out of paganism. It's not. Because he was Irish himself. Um, mm-hmm. Today, a lot of people, there's a lot of people who, you know, identify with Celtic paganism for some reason or another. And uh, they they'll be like, oh, you know, I don't like I don't like Patrick. Patrick was evil. Patrick oppressed, you know, my people. And it's like, OK, well, the Irish saw it as a good thing that Patrick came over and drove the pagans out. I mean, it was several hundred years later after years of Catholic propaganda. But. They were happy about it. Um, you know, Patrick driving the snakes out of Ireland. The snakes are obviously the Druids um, and, all, and all of that. But it's very funny because the the reason Patrick is a hero is for bringing Christianity to Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Entirely. And the, the real thing is that no one can really tell what happened there at that time because – the the story as it goes is like it's not like he went in fire and brimstone. It's just Patrick through literal respect of local chieftains in demonstrating who he was as a person and his virtue is mm-hmm. something that gradually converted people. Do and- not do not deny him credit for being one of the smartest men in history and realizing that if you could get some guy's wife to want something then you could convince him to get it. Yep. <laughs> this is a man who went in and made a habit of converting noble women to Catholicism, even though it wasn't really Catholicism at the time. It was just Christianity. Um, converting like both common and noble women to Christianity so that their husbands eventually would go along with it. And even if the like, husbands didn't, the children raised would exactly. have that instilled in them. Exactly. He he because he was a slave in Irish culture. He got Irish culture. He understood how powerful women were in Irish culture because they, you know, I will I I will say very many things about the problems with Celtic paganism in terms of like human sacrifice and whatnot. But uh, their equality between men and women was like phenomenal. The only thing that women couldn't legally own equal to men was their children. 
children were the property of the father. But everything else, they'd have prenups. Like Celtic, Irish Celtic society in terms of marital contracts was so, so far advanced to the point where it's, it mirrors today. That is actually insane. It really is. It really is, especially considering the time, because you also would not expect that to nearly the same degree of, say, a people that were constantly raiding and fighting one another. Like, yes, Ireland was a land of song. It was a land of stories. It, it was. It was also a land of cattle raids. Like, that was that was really the thing. The entirety of the region, there was very few points in which in Irish history in which it was united under one high king. And even when it was united under a high king, you still had all the other little petty kings underneath them that were still fighting each other. Usually a also, high king would come to power, and that was against some kind of external threat. And then once that high king was dead, immediately everything would split apart again. And it's it, it, the the level of convolution you need to get to to get to the high king position in Ireland. We did. If anyone wants to check it out uh, on the Lore Lodge channel, we have a like 36 minute video on Brian Baru, the first real high king of Ireland. And it's uh, doing the doing the research for it took forever because so many things happen like the guy watches a couple of his brothers die when he's a, a young boy and decides, you know what? It's time to just get rid of the Vikings entirely. I'm going to make that my life's work. Yep. Which for those of you who don't know, there was a Viking kingdom or I, I'm going to call it a kingdom. It really wasn't as much of a kingdom. It was the kingdom of Dublin, basically. So the area where Dublin is Vikings ruled it for a time and they essentially controlled that city. Well, at the time, I, I wouldn't exactly call it a city, but they controlled that settlement and they controlled some of the area around it and would use it as a base of operation to be able to raid just like anyone else there would at the time. And then I think I remember a theory on it that it wasn't that those Vikings got driven out. Yes, they fought. But over time, what happened to the Vikings in the area is that they were quite literally bred out. Yeah. There's there's an entire cultural and uh, ethnic group that develops at the time called the Hiberno Norse, and that's what they are. Is yes, it's it's just a it's it's kind of like the Anglo Norse stuff that happened, just they're the not the genocide aspect. Um, also, the Anglo the Anglo Saxons and the Norse were two sides of the same coin, basically, um, in, in, ethnically. Uh, yeah, yeah, because uh, descended from the Angles and the Saxons came over centuries before. They were not the first ones that were on the that were on the Isles. The original yeah, Vikings of the area was actually the Saxons and the Angles. There are there are three prior to Swain Forkbeard. There are three full Germanic invasions of the British Isles. There's one by uh, the the Jutes, Angles, and Saxons in the 400s. Weren't the and then there's another, another one? one. The what? The Gates? Uh, yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of these little, like, tribal groups because they hadn't coalesced yet into, you know, broader groups. We're talking about a time when this entire region was still operating in local tribes. Yep. So it's not it, you're not looking at Norway. You're looking at a whole bunch of different Norwegian tribes. And that's how they saw themselves. They wouldn't see themselves as Norway until around the 11th century, um, the, the late 10th century. Correct. Um, not until you had actual kings of Norway. Even then before you pledged fealty not to a king, it was to a Jarl. And if you didn't have a yeah. Jarl, there could be petty Jarls and actual grand Jarls. And it wasn't until a Jarl had accumulated enough power they could actually call himself a king because 
he was just still a Jarl. It's kind of like what we'd associate as a Duke, but there is a massive difference between the Duke of this little settlement with like, you know, the Duchy of Luxembourg versus like the Duchy of Brandenburg or something. Yeah. These, these giant basic nation states that are just because of a whole bunch of medieval BS. They're not kingdoms. Um, but that, that is the one thing that I, I still fail to understand after all this time. <laughs> Do you want me to explain it in part? Because the reason is going to piss it, yeah. you off more than anything else. Is it Rome? Is the reason Rome? No. Okay. Prestige. Oh, the entire, you could have a territory not grow in size at all, and it could still be raised from a county to a duchy by virtue of the fact that so typically speaking, and it depends on the culture where you are a in order for someone to be a duke, they would have blood related to the royal family. So this is why in England, for example, when you have the duchies, the the duchies are actually relatives of the crown. You could still be an earl, like you could still be one of these like counts. But of course, there's the difference in like naming sense between Mm -hmm. the English names and the French and, you know, the Latin tradition. But that's why the English ones are so goddamn confusing. Yeah, well, because it's a hybrid. It's a mix of all these varying things. Yes. But the gist of it is that we've got French counts and German dukes and local earls. like, Mm -hmm. And in the Holy Roman Empire, where. In order to earn because it was a it was an elective system, what regularly would happen is that the emperor would have to bribe people to vote for him. So at different points, you'd have rulers whose status was elevated to a higher title of nobility in exchange for voting and support. Which just the the Holy Roman Empire is a whole other thing to get. <laughs> yeah, so that is I could go on and on and on and on. I've done a lot of that actually. When I was working for uh, for Paradox for Crusaders Kings, that was a very common subject that everyone's like, I don't, "What is this? What is that?" Because it's it's it is a beast to tackle. But the really funny thing about it, and I know that we're in this point. This was going to be Vikings, and now it's just medieval world everything in general now. <laughs> but the. The gist with the Holy Roman Empire is that it did not become the absolute fuster cluck that it did what you see in like the 14 and 1500s really until around the 12th and 13th century. Prior to that, the Holy Roman Empire was one of the strongest, most centralized states in Europe. When you oh, yeah. looked at it as a, on a map, you didn't look at it as the individual counties and duchies. You looked at it as the entirety of the empire stretching from like Jutland there in uh, Austria, it, like in Denmark. All, no, all the way south going into Sicily. Yeah, the entire. And, and on of top that. of that, there's there's also, you know, it, it doesn't get talked about because everyone thinks about the Holy Roman Empire in its later state as all of these principalities and duchies and and electorates. They were seen as essentially in in multiple cases, multiple times. They were the only thing powerful enough to stand up to the pope. Nobody else would tell the pope what to do except the Holy Roman Empire. Well, and and the Byzantines. But and that was was the precise thing that caused the problem. So are you familiar with the story of the uh, the Guelphs? Yes. Guelphs and Ghibellines. Yes. 
Yeah. So for those of you who are not familiar, who may not understand, essentially there was this massive political rift between the Holy Roman Empire and the Papal States, between the Pope and the Emperor, as to who exactly had the power to appoint bishops. Because in the church, the highest position that you can be before being a Pope is to be a bishop. Like that, a bishop had massive sway over property, over religious practices, over everything in an area. And what would typically happen as a way to give a reward to supporters is that a emperor would appoint positions of bishops to family members, either within their own family or within the family members of supporters. Like if you had a guy who had supported your rise to the throne, you would make his third born son a bishop. You know, oh, and there's. There, there's even uh, like you're, you're getting into the investiture controversy now. And yep. that that whole episode is insane mm-hmm. because it's so first of all, the guy who actually causes the investiture controversy is also partially responsible for the Great Schism. This guy named Hildebrand, uh, who becomes Gregory the seventh uh, when he's elevated to pope. So he's Cardinal Hildebrand and is, you know, a player in the iconoclast controversy. And then he becomes pope and gets into the investor controversy. And he's the guy that ends up di- issuing the Dictatus Pape, which is the document that uh, claims that the pope is the highest authority in all the world, not just religious, but also secular, and that all kings bow to the pope, which, in my opinion, directly leads over into uh, the the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation across Europe as that starts to crop up in the 1300s. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Obviously, the Reformation not becoming the full-fledged movement it was until, what, 1519? Yeah, but what you're talking about is like the initial uh, you have several heretical groups, uh, the Mm -hmm. first of which the first major one was the Cathars. Yes. And that the absolute coldest quote of all time comes out of the the bishop who was in charge of that siege um, of the one city. I can't remember which one off the top of my head. And and, hey, can you guess? Can you guess where that was? Uh, Southern France. Southern France. <laughs> Remember what I said, Southern France from the very beginning of this, that that is like it has literally been a hot like a, just a whole area filled with heresy, apostasy and everything from the very beginning. Southern France, like when we think of France, the primary medieval idea of France was usually centered more in the north. The actual southern region was not French. It was well, let's see, what's the term? Occitan? Uh, yeah, Occitan. Austin. And the, historically, they had a different language. Over time, it basically it became French, but mm-hmm. they were phenomenally more 
independent minded in comparison to the rest of France. And that's saying something because the entirety of France, it was the perfect medieval kingdom. Perfect in the sense that the king barely had any control over his nobles. You swore loyalty to a lord who swore loyalty to another lord who swore loyalty to another lord. And these massive connection networks would just lead to massive fights across the country. Oh, yeah. When when people think about medieval Europe, the, the picture they're getting a lot of the time they think it's England, it's France. <laughs> France is the archetype. Everything else was a model of France. Exactly. Exactly. France was the Holy Roman Empire before the Holy Roman Empire that was the Holy Roman Empire. And it was also the Holy Roman Empire after the <laughs> it, it was <laughs> in terms of power. I mean, they were the ones in charge of the pope. But, yeah, I mean, it was King Charlemagne was a a French king. Um yep. And, you know, his the, the, his story is you know, the, the whole being crowned on Christmas Day and then almost strangling the pope. But while we're on the topic of the Albigensians, I need to mention the massacre of Betsier. July 21st, 1209, I pulled up the Wikipedia page because I want to make sure I got the details right. But this is one of my, like, absolute coldest quotes in history. Uh, the the commander is Bishop Amalric. And um, the, the city had both Catholics and Cathars, Albigensians. So when they captured it... He was asked by his his commanders, you know, how do we know who's Catholic and who's Cathar? The two the two religions used essentially the exact same terminology. There, there was really not a good way to tell. Uh, and Amalric's response was, "Kill them all. God will know his own." Yup. 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 And and the, this isn't like even this isn't the barbaric period that people think of like the dark ages. No, this is the this is the thirteenth century. This is twelve oh nine. Like this is the chivalrous period that everybody thinks of. Mm hmm. And it was just absolutely brutal. That that yep yes it absolutely was holy crap yeah that line I'd, I'd argue they treated the I, I think they treated the Cathars worse than they treated some of the Muslim cities during the Crusades in oh. my opinion oh they did because here's the thing the Cathars were at home they were always going to be a, an enemy that needed to be stomped out Islam could be driven away Islam was something that was always seen as an other but the Cathars were seen as an internal corruption that would lead to the destruction of society itself, as they viewed it, at least. Doesn't mean that they actually were, it's just that's how they viewed it, and it needed to be stamped out. Yeah, it's, it, they were not having it. <laughs> and it wasn't even like, it, they didn't have a problem with it when it was the, the commoners. The, they started to crack down on it when it started to penetrate the nobility and when it started to get into places like Paris. Yes. So they had kind of tolerated it partially because it was close enough. Um, it was dualists and it had very weird, uh, like to, to bring a child into the world was considered sinful, but carnal relations were not, um, some, just some very weird ideology about how the flesh is evil and the material world is evil. And, you know, life is life is you know suffering it was it's a very perverted you know perspective on judeo-christian values in a way and it it was a mix of just local gnostic traditions and christianity and when it started to get into the upper class suddenly the the pope was not having it um and i think that there's i think it's one of the few situations where you see a genuine fear 
from yep. the, the Catholic Church that something's about to go wrong. Because when it comes to the Northern Crusades and the Baltics, that was just about expanding territory. That was just about converting all these people and, and gathering more into Christendom. Yep. Um, the Albigensians were a different beast. Well, in the case of the papacy, that was a direct challenge to its authority, and the papacy had just spent the previous two century, centuries centralizing it. So yeah. it, for those that are may not be aware, Catholicism, as we think about it, like before the schism, was not – it wasn't Catholicism. Like, yes, there was Western Christianity and there was Eastern Christianity, what would evolve into Catholicism and Orthodoxy, but what you had before – was the Pope was one of the five Pentarchs, right? And so when the Pope raised himself to the position of supreme importance, which, yes, the position in Rome, the Pope, the head, the Pentarch in Rome was supposed to be the head Pentarch. Yes, but he was, he was first among equals. Was correct, the correct. That's that's the idea. But of course, the Byzantines essentially collapse. Uh, Alexandria Antioch and Jerusalem's fall and now all of well no no it was a Jerusalem Antioch yeah. and yeah, in terms of Alexandria seas. right in terms of seas just Damascus was another one of the big cities yes it, it was another one of the main religious points but those three fall and now that means you have two you have Rome and you have Constantinople there is no balancing anymore you have a weak imperial power that cannot exert its influence and then you have Rome the shining light of Christendom though in the at the, at, in that year it really wasn't all that shining it's like if you no, look at not. Rome and what it was or what it had fallen to by like the 900s early thousands in comparison to what it was 300 years earlier and what it looked like 400 years after it was it was a shanty basically yeah Rome was not a, you know the the big the, the the shining cities in Europe were like Vienna and Paris I uh, God in England, I don't know that I would call anything shining. No, no, too cloudy. But that's the point is like, you know, the the cities back then that people were looking at is like, oh, my gosh, this is beautiful. We're not Rome and London. (laughs) Um, And I mean, Rome, the the picture we all get of all of these beautiful villas and and red brick and all of that is, is all from the Renaissance. You know, that's not... That, that is not what you were dealing with during the medieval period. Correct. Correct. You really don't start to see a lot of it build up. The major artwork occurs in the 1400s, but in the 1300s is really where you start to see that build up. Prior to that, I, I covered this for a whole story. Are you familiar with um, Pope John the – I believe it's the 10th. I, I might be familiar with what he did, but not familiar with him by name. This is the guy who is regarded as the worst pope because he was the 18 year old that became pope. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of hearsay for those listening as to exactly what this guy did. I did an entire episode on him. No, actually, I did. I did an entire episode on him. Like, I think it was like back in the middle like the 13 14 15th episode or something like that and either way this guy was the youngest pope in history and at the time that he was elected to the papacy the cardinal like the college of cardinals didn't exist it wasn't really a thing what you had was the people of rome elected the pope and the previous 
quote-unquote ruler or lord of Rome had essentially made the notables in the population promise to elect his son when he died. And so, yeah, when he died, this 18-year-old became pope, and it's like he did what any 18-year-old who was raised as a spoiled brat would do when given an immense amount of power. He basically turned the entire city into a frat house. Like, they all met on a hill, he got elected, and then almost immediately he just started hosting hooker parties. Which, uh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, of all the things you shouldn't do as Pope. (laughs) Of all the things you shouldn't do as Pope. Uh, To be fair, a number of the stories are probably exaggerated or just outright false, but there is enough stuff in there that if even 1% of it is true, would make him the worst Pope. Because there there were a lot of cases of people, especially by the time of the Protestant era, of recounting histories of popes and of things that just made stories that were significantly worse than they actually were. But it also doesn't help the fact that there were some really slimy popes that did things. <laughs> like in his case, in his case, we know for a fact that he died in bed with another man's wife. Oh, at the age of 27. That's not good. Whether it was because of a stroke or whether it was because the husband came home and beat the ever living shit out of him and then tossed him out a window. We don't know. We only know that he was in bed with another man's wife. That's that's the detail. That is the detail. (laughs) They just did not make good decisions either from from a ruling standpoint. I mean, the, the conciliar movement that happens 100 years before the Reformation, they had they had a real shot. They had a chance. They had an opportunity. Are you talking about the, the Hussites? Yeah. And, it, it, you know, first of all, the fact that this guy was a major early reformer of the church uh, and also invented mounted artillery. Um, War wagons. Like, <laughs> OK. Also, the, the strat. Do you know the strategy he used? Yeah. He would because build mobile only, fortresses. Oh, it's not just that. So the cannons could really only like fire once before they were going to need to they were gonna, before they were going to have problems um, in terms of the enemy reaching them. So what they would do was they would set up their cannons, fire at the enemy, immediately hook them on wagons and move them elsewhere, then point them where they just were. Yeah, because he knew that's where the enemy was going to be. It was devastating. And so eventually he gets invited down to Rome and they're like, hey, uh, we want to talk to you. We want to we you know, we want to know your grievances and maybe we can make some changes. And he's like, you know what? Awesome. I'm going to do that. Gets there. And I think I think the actual meeting was in Venice, if I remember correctly, Um, gets there. They throw him in jail. Tell him he has to confess to heresy and then execute him. Yep. Burn him at the stake, which did not really play well with like other early Protestant groups and just Catholics outside of the immediate sphere of influence of Rome. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel! 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Not, not, not good planning, you know? <laughs> nope. Nope. Not at all. Especially not after the trouble that they were having as though that would immediately quell it because by that time the ideas had already disseminated. Yeah. They were, their only real option was to make changes and instead they killed the guy and refused to make any changes. They, also, they just have a habit of doing that with anybody who's inconvenient and especially people who are inconvenient for the French because the, the Templars like just that was literally a money it was literally for money that wasn't it wasn't them being inconvenient the inconvenience was hey uh so we borrowed a bunch of money from the templars and now i I don't really have the ability to pay it back so no if it isn't the consequences of my own actions (laughs) literally (laughs) and then you know one of my i will say one of my favorite things is that you have the the french get rid of the templars in uh, I think it's thirteen fourteen, and then the the Templars, the remaining ones, go off into hiding. And uh, you know, tra- tradition holds that the ones who went to England uh, went into hiding and took up other professions, and then eventually formed the Freemasons. And then the Freemasons come over to America and found America. Um, so the French really, like the French, are partially responsible for America, but in a really negative way. I mean, you could make the argument that France is responsible for America in completely other ways as well. Like if you just follow the chain, like we do this as a whole of France driving England from its shores means that England no longer has a hold on the continent. So they focused entirely on their Navy. England's Navy did not really become a thing until going into the 1500s. And by at that point, they had lost everything on the continent and they focused almost exclusively on their Navy to be able to explore and control sea routes. If they didn't do that, if they had invested more control into France itself and continued to fight over territory, then you wouldn't see large expeditions going overseas. They just didn't have any interest when they had continental matters. Yeah. Also, the other just, you know, England and France – Growing up, my understanding of this whole thing was that basically England and France were just launching invasions at each other because I didn't know any better. I get to college and I'm made aware that, uh, first of all, England was not England. It was the Angevin Empire um, and that the, the French who were smaller than the Angevin Empire, uh, actually were the overlords of the Angevin Empire. And that and King Richard oh God. was an Angevin, and that he actually preferred France to England and really only spent like six months in England. Correct. Um, like, at, the whole story you hear as a kid, because of course, growing up in the Anglosphere, we we all heard the Robin Hood story. Um, just not, not nearly what you think it is. Nope, nope. <laughs> 
nope. And I think this will be the last little story here that we kind of cover on because this is really ended up. I thought this was going to be a Vikings one. This just ended up being medieval world in general all over the place from marrying once. But this, <laughs> the story that he's talking about with King Richard and it's like Richard, the good king, Richard, the popular king. It was his evil brother, John, that Robin Hood had to fight against to help the poor. No, John was collecting all these taxes and doing all this stuff and exploiting the populace to raise money to pay for the ransom after Richard got his ass captured. Yeah, like, it's <laughs> and the, the only reason the only reason Richard even got captured is because he fell in love with another girl and then abandoned the girl that he was engaged to who what, what happened is that he then while he was in the while he was in the Middle East in um um, I think it was in Cyprus itself. And then when they took a series of castles in the Holy Land, he threw down the standard of the Duke of Austria. What was it? Yeah, it was the Duke of yeah. Austria and said, like, no, only kings can raise their flags here. So it was just him and Louis, like, despite the fact that this is the leader of the German forces that are there with them, he just completely disregards them. And so it's the Germans take revenge on him later by imprisoning him for a year and extorting him for money that I believe, if I recall correctly, was twice the annual income of England. Yeah. It was an, an absurd amount of money, but there's even more to that, too, because the, the sting is really how Richard actually gets there, because the French and the Germans took the, the overland route. Richard took a bit longer, like, you know, had to raise the money and gather everything for the crusade, bankrupts England, sells off everything to pay for the crusade. Um, so England, when he gets captured, is already bankrupt, um, goes down, uh, finds out, I believe it's his sister is imprisoned in Sicily. Uh, oh, that story. I love covering. I covered this whole thing. I did an eight part series on the Crusades. Yeah, he, he walks up and he's like, listen, you have until four to give me my sister. And if you don't, I will raise your entire island. And then he does. <laughs> yep. Yep. And then in the process, accidentally became king of Cyprus, too. <laughs> Though yeah, because then he goes to Cyprus because he goes to Cyprus because his fiance is there, um, and the king is in prison. The king of Cyprus has imprisoned her, if I'm remembering the story correctly. He called himself uh, emperor, but yes, yeah. And then he just takes the entire island of Cyprus in an afternoon. And then by the time they get to Acre, they sail into the harbor, and Acre's like, "Oh, it's this guy," and just lets him in. Yep. And and that's when, you know, they, they let in the Crusaders outside as well. And the, the Duke of Austria goes and raises his banner and Richard pulls it down. Um, it, I think if is it Richard? It's also Richard, I think, who I uh, outside of one of the other Middle Eastern cities on the way to Jerusalem, um, they wanted to do a prisoner exchange. And I, I, he, he was killed in the city all of them. Yeah, and he killed all of his prisoners. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> the Saracens were like, oh. Oh, yeah, that's like his one because he was remarkably honorable for the majority of the crusade. That action was like yeah. his one great like the mar upon his his stain. The big thing is, of course, I think they needed money. They didn't have supplies. And that's where it was justified or how they justified it. That it's like, no, you either pay the ransom now or. And yeah. in the end, they had to. Yeah, it was brutal. Brutal yeah. stuff. 
But that is Richard. And honestly, there are so many more stories that could be covered. <laughs> that, oh, like, yeah. literally, we're talking this. This had nothing specific. This is just medieval chat in general. This was just me regurgitating my entire degree. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem they, is it, it was just medieval studies. So I learned nothing about anywhere. <laughs> see, that's that's a thing that I will I will leave on this note. People have told me over and over again, like, oh, stack, you know, so many things, you know, like everything. It's like, no, no. Here, here's the thing. Uh, my specialty is world history. In that sense, I have no specialty. I yeah. know some about just about everything. But if you have a person who exclusively studied, like they were a medievalist, they were an ancient Roman scholar, they were a Chinese philosopher, they were all these other hey, things, I will get my you know, ass kicked about whatever their specific thing is. Didn't you know that ancient Rome was made up by the Catholic Church? God damn <laughs> Oh, we're going to need to save more of that here for what I do in the conspiracies. Because yeah. <laughs> conspiracies is definitely a podcast that's coming up. Oh, and anyway, I would love to be involved. <laughs> thank you to everyone who has listened. I hope you have a good rest of your day. And Aiden, thank you so much for being on here. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right. What, do you want to plug yourself one more time before you go? Oh, yeah, of course. Right. Um, yeah. So I'm Aiden Mattis. I am the host of The Lore Lodge on YouTube. And you can find me at The Aiden Mattis on TikTok and Instagram. Uh, you know, other than that, that's uh, that's about all I do. Well, thank you very much. And I hope you'll have a good rest of your day. Bye, guys. Yes. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.